Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's been a while since we've had an episode about refund claims fraud, or also known as refund fraud or refunding, and it often impacts retailers and or delivery apps delivering food from restaurants, groceries, really anything that's delivered to a consumer can be targets of this. And I know that since we talked about it, a lot more retailers have been realizing that they're targets of this type of fraud. And this type of fraud is often responsible for losing like more than 10 times as much as retailers are losing on their fraud chargeback side or just chargebacks in general. Granted, that's also because often most enterprise retailers are doing something about fraud chargebacks. So we have to keep that in perspective. But even more so than retailers realizing that they have this problem, often they don't know what can be done. And I've been wanting to do this episode for quite a while, but I wanted to wait until Diana Gajic Physic, head of e-commerce fraud for Finish Line and JD Sports North America, could join me. Because Diana was one of the retailers that was first targeted for this type of fraud, She and many of her peers have had a bit of a head start to study and understand the new method being used to steal from online retailers. So I asked her to join me for the next two episodes of Fraudology to talk about what we've learned about refund fraud. But first, I wanted to step back a little bit because I think sometimes when we talk about it, and I know that for a good year or two, starting about three years ago, I was presenting a lot about this. I was talking about it on my previous podcast, as well as this one when we first started, and doing quite a few webinars and presentations. Diana and I were even quoted in a Wall Street Journal article about this topic. And I think that I just stopped talking about it for a bit because at least the retailers that I was working with at the time on this topic had not figured it out, but created a framework of methodology to be able to identify new exploits and know how to do it. And I felt like we had a pretty good handle on it. But then As time went on, I started getting the same questions I was getting three years ago, but just from different retailers. And I realized, oh, this is still really important. But then I'll hear some solution providers as well as some e-commerce merchants and all I think mean well talk about this in a way that I just don't think it's true to what we've seen from the data. It's not there might be edge cases that they're talking about or that they think that their solution can solve, but it's not the majority. And so Just taking a step back to talk about what we refer to as refund fraud, and again, I've been trying to call it refund claims fraud because that's what it is, it never was considered fraud until fairly recently because this process within e-commerce was never exploited at scale the way it is now because it's really not payment fraud, right? It's not the same thing as what we think about when a credit card is stolen, but it's really or was the refund claims process. That has traditionally been a function of customer service without much or any governance. So up until, and for some companies, this is still the case, that customers can call and make a claim that will provide them with a refund and they won't need to, they wouldn't be able to 
in a legitimate case, they wouldn't be able to return the item that was received because the package was lost or stolen or because the package was damaged by the time it got to them or they received an empty box or they ordered several items and two of them didn't arrive. Those, a lot of times those were legitimate and sure there were often people who would abuse it here or there, but they'd use their same account so you could be aware of it. You could maybe fit somebody who's a repeat offender say, hey, we're going to require a signature next time. Or it seems like things aren't really delivering to your address very well. Is there an alternative address or can we send it to an access point for our carrier? Those types of things. But I personally believe that a lot of this is due to the fact that payment fraud has become much harder for criminals to use to steal items. So they discovered that weaponizing the refunds claim process was a gaping hole that retailers weren't paying attention to. So now that it's being used to steal from retailers at just an insane scale, companies have been realizing that they can't solve it in any other way than to treat it as fraud. This is not an abuse problem. This is fraud. There are intentionalities around it. And as I've said at several of the presentations I've done for this, one good thing about fraud intentions is that typically that means systemized and systematic behaviors by the criminals. And that's still true. It's just that we need to identify them in very different ways than you identify payment fraud. And to be honest, that has stumped a lot of people. And I consider myself so lucky to have gotten to work with 30 or 40 of the biggest retailers on this problem from the beginning. The companies that were being hit first were really second or third behind the top two retailers in the world. And we were able to really study it. And I also got to study the criminal side and got special access to that for quite a while and got to see, okay, if they move from this, they do this. If they, if this gap gets shut down, then they go here. And they're very systematic and actually quite predictable. So before companies have realized that it's fraud and gone to fraud departments, and you'll hear Diana talk about how they did it in their company and kind of how it ended up with her, a lot of times they've tried supply chain analysis. Is this something to do with our carrier? Is this something to do with the specific locations, similar distribution centers, things like that? They'll look at inventory, warehouse inventory controls. Some have tried setting policies or rules to trigger at the time of transaction, but that generally affects customers with a long history with your brand, or it can create too many false positives. And so we need to have a different place within the customer lifecycle to identify this. I wanted to point out that this is at the risk of this intro being way too long, but since Diana and I recorded this episode, she sent me an article of a solution provider within the space who has started to call refund fraud, as well as policy abuse and other things by a new name. And they're calling it casual fraud. I'm going to have a lot more thoughts on this in a solo episode soon. I know I, I owe you guys a couple of different solo episodes very soon, and I'm looking forward to doing that. But it was definitely necessary that this week be a double episode because Diana and I can talk about refund fraud for much longer than an hour and a half. But I just, I don't know, it, it really, it bothers me, right? Like I understand the desire to want to have a new term and have a publication write about something. But I just worry that if we call it casual fraud, that's even worse than calling something friendly fraud, right? Because that kind of is almost like a double negative or almost like an oxymoron. How can something be casual and fraud? And it made me think about in a physical retail store, whether someone steals straight from a company's shelves or returns an older broken version of the product that they purchased 
in the store, that's still seen as theft. That's still counted as theft. They are intentionally stealing something from you. And when it comes to refund fraud, it's pretty much the exact same outcome as with chargebacks minus a chargeback fee. Because if someone is claiming that the item didn't come to their house or that the item was damaged when it wasn't or that they returned an item to your warehouse, but it never got there. Or you've got really weird stuff when you look at the details of the tracking numbers, which, yes, there are reasons for that. Unfortunately, we couldn't talk about that on either episode because we are very conscious of the fact that this is a public platform. But we will provide at the end of Thursday's episode a way to find out all of those things that we can share a little more privately with a vetted group. So stay tuned for that. But I guess I just I want to caution everyone not to take a cutesy name. I think that fraud is fraud. So on today's episode, Diana and I are going to talk more about kind of how we, along with about 30 to 40 of the biggest retailers in the U.S. and the U.K., first learned about these issues. It was just a little over three years ago now. And how working together with dozens of their peers was what helped these companies and myself shorten up the time it took to diagnose and work towards a fix. And there's no easy fix. Reducing refund claim fraud isn't for the lazy. And beyond the framework of methodology that we've kind of created along the way, each company will undoubtedly identify different gaps to fill. There's a lot of similar gaps, but there's a lot of different ones too. But like I said, over the last several years, we've worked together to study enough trial and error on both sides of this fraud issue to know what these gap groups will do if when the most common gaps are closed. Welcome back to Fraudology. I am here with a dear friend and someone who we both call ourselves fraud fighting nerds and often spend a lot of time, whether it's via text message or phone, geeking out on all different types of fraud and especially on refund fraud. She has been kind of my partner in anti-crime over the last three years in really diving into these things and in sharing a lot of information about it too. So Diana Gajic Physic, I welcome back to Fraudology. Thank you very much. And it's good to be back. And yes, I am a fraud fighting nerd. And I proudly wear that crown like any other. NTRs. <laughs> do nerds have crowns? I don't know, but we do. We should have them. We right? should have them. I agree. We met several years ago, and I think we knew of each other a long time before that. And we talked about this on previous episodes because I think this is your third visit to Fraudology and actually your first episode from, I think it was the beginning of 2022 on Sneaker Bots is still yes. the reigning champion of most downloads, most downloaded episode on Fraudology. Wow. Do you have any insight how many bot users downloaded that episode? <laughs> Maybe they were trying to learn what to do. I don't think so, because I'm pretty sure if it was bots, we'd have a lot more numbers or even the yes. bot users. We'd have tens of thousands rather than thousands of downloads. And also being the data nerd that I am, I'm often looking at patterns and trends on all of the episodes. And so because I often will have people say, you know, do you think fraudsters? I'm like, I don't think fraudsters have found fraudology, because if so, I would see a huge spike in certain episodes. Yeah. 
and I would share it probably in exactly the, right. The yep, but I'm definitely flattered. You're not only an expert on sneaker bots because you have had to be as head of online fraud for JD Sports North America, but you also have quickly become, as I think I have too, an expert on refund fraud in retail, or what I'm trying to actually call refund claims fraud. I still go by the shorthand refund fraud sometimes, but there's been more than a few times, especially recently, where people assume that refund fraud is similar to payment fraud. And so I've been trying to explain it's very different and the way that you solve for it and the way that you uh, maybe not solve, but the way that you address it and reduce the impact is not the same as you address payment fraud. So that's why I'm trying to call it refund claims fraud, but even I'm not good at remembering that. It's more of a mouthful. Yeah, I think you can call it refund fraud only because I do have two different categories. One is refund fraud and one is INRs. And INRs are only one small part of refund fraud. Absolutely so they are, yeah. That's why I and think INR you can stands for, yeah, inventory not received. Or item not received, yes. Um, item so, not received inventory, yeah. yeah. So I think you can definitely call it refund fraud because there are just a lot more ways to commit that refund fraud and the ones but they're that all using the claims, common. right? So that's why it's abusing the claims process for a retailer. And that's why I try to put that in there because otherwise I've had some people just assume, oh, refund fraud is just exactly, you know, is very similar to any other kind of fraud. And I'm like, no, it's actually committing fraud in the claims process. So that's more what I mean. But let's, yeah, so I thought it would be good for us to dive in first to the history of this, because a little over three years ago, I don't think other than the two or three biggest retailers, and this is primarily a U.S. issue, however, retailers in, that ship to the U.K. and Germany and a few other countries, and I believe Australia is starting to have it, but I know their postal system is a little challenging. So when they start to get deliveries better, then that will be exploited too. But I guess, you know, primarily this is a U.S. issue. But I think the other than the three biggest retailers in the U.S., nobody really knew that the refund claims process would be scaled, right? It's been abused here and there, but we'd never seen it just blow up before. But, and I've told this story before, and I think on the podcast, but just, you know, quickly, in, after holiday of 2019, I had several retailers reach out to me and just because oftentimes they'll reach out to me if they've, you know, maybe they've called, you know, a few other people and asked or anything, but people know that, you know, I know a lot of different merchants. So they just say, is anyone else seeing a huge increase in INRs? And after the fourth or fifth retailer asking me that, I was like, I don't think this is fraud related, but I can get you guys all on a call and just post a Zoom and you guys can talk to each other. Which was and a great idea. Thank you. And you were one of the people that I invited to the call. I think there were about... 25 people or so on the first call. We now have a distribution list of over 80, but (laughs) yeah, you know, there's a few people for some companies, but it's about 60 companies or so and uh, all in retail. And I just kind of said, hey, if you're having issues with a bigger increase in customers claiming the inventory wasn't received, the package wasn't delivered, this is an opportunity for you to talk to your peers. I don't think I have anything to add, but here, we'll just host it. And I thought you were on that call and I'd love for you to share when you started having this issue internally, when you noticed it and, you know, how it came to you. And if you thought that it was, you know, what it's become now when you first got it. I really believe that this was always a problem. Don't think it was at this scale, but I really think that refunding 
refund fraud, refund claim fraud was always a problem. We just never had access to it because, as you know, fraud teams were usually, and most of those fraud teams still are, very focused on payment fraud. And with rule-based systems in the past, we really spend majority of our times monitoring manual review, monitoring decisions, chargebacks. So I don't really think fraud teams really had like deep dive into this data to be able to say this is fraud. You probably had some other teams out, out there, finance or customer service or what, whatever else, looking at this, but not from the risk approach. So that's probably why this risk factor or fraud factor was missed for the majority of the time. Time Was there ever anyone that was looking at the validity of claims? Because I feel like at the probably most part, any time a customer called and said, my product, you know, the item didn't arrive or the box was empty when it arrived on my doorstep or I ordered five things and the most expensive thing was broken, that it was always take the word for it because it wasn't at a high scale. And I don't think there was ever like a quality assurance team or anyone yeah. that was investigating it, right? So I'm sure that each customer service team has, any department has quality assurance team, you know, double checking, but most of those quality assurance are making sure that you go through the steps, that you hear the reason, that you tag right. the reason properly, mm -hmm. that you take the steps properly. I think our worst assumption is to assume that others are thinking in the way we are. Yeah. Like you can have the smartest person in customer service team look over 10 claims and say, okay, fine, we did them right. We took, we put the right reason code in place. We made the right decision. We made customer happy. I can look at them and say, oh, there's 10 different links to a single customer or 10 mm -hmm. different databases that are indicating mm -hmm. risk. So I think we're just looking at this information differently. So I do believe in the past fraud teams or risk teams were never looking at this data from like a fraud point of view. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it was missed. But also I actually was looking at this. I was brought in as a partner to look at these claims back in 2018. I actually... Hmm. Was I showed you? I was <laughs> telling you I just pulled up the report. Yeah, you went down memory lane and pulled up a report from 2018. And when you first started to dive into it and try to understand what was happening, but even at that point, I was trying number. I, at that point, I was trying to dismiss fraud. I was trying to file a report to our team to say, "Hey, yes, there is fraud. This is the amount of fraud that is happening in these claims. It's not a concern for us to be involved in." And little did I know that wasn't true. And even at that point, I was specifically looking at INRs. I was specifically trying to link customers that are filing multiple claims. There was very little data that I could use to have the larger investigation or do the larger trend analysis. So that was quite some time ago. And I think that's probably what kind of helped me be ahead of most of the merchants. And I'm not trying to say I'm like so much better than everyone else. I just no. think I started looking at it yeah. earlier than everyone else from the fraud perspective and was able to put some things in place to mitigate this. But I do remember our call and I remember talking about it. And I actually remember mm -hmm. your email. I can tell you exactly <laughs> where I was standing when I received that email. For the day, and for the next day. Yeah. So I'll, correct. Um, I'll lead up on that. Yeah. I think one of the reasons also why you were ahead of it is because you and I are very similar. Even though all fraud fighters, oh, I would say 97 to 95% of all fraud fighters are very similar in what drives us and in sense of justice and purpose and impact and all of those things. And we care deeply about this, but there's some that are really good at the technical side. And there are some that are really good at 
operations and there's some that you know, really get excited about product. I think you and I, we love to dig and find new kinds of fraud. We love, we don't, if we're talking about the f- same fraud from five years ago, it's like, eh, we already knew about that. Yeah. Which truthfully in my consultancy can be a challenge because I'm constantly like distracted by the shiny new thing. Well, a lot of times people like it takes three years, right? For a lot of companies to realize, oh, we have that problem. We need to hire a consultant. And I'm like, oh yeah, I helped solve for that three years ago. But I mean, I'm happy to go back, but then I'm just not good about advertising those things. But um, so you and I love to essentially pick up rocks and see what's underneath and figure out the why and then figure out the how, their how, and then our how. Like, how did they do it? And how are we going to fix it? And yeah, and so it just, it was so weird and totally coincidental, but obviously meant to be that the day after we had that call and on that call, merchants were saying things like, yeah, our supply chain team looked into this and logistics looked into it. Everyone's looked into this and they gave it to me because they're just trying to figure out what's the common denominator. And I remember people asking like, well, who do you guys use for shipping carriers? Who do you guys use? Oh, wait, nobody's the same. Okay, what else is the same? Like, we're trying to solve this problem by figuring out what's the common denominator for these INR claims to be going up so high, not thinking that it was anything really to do with what we do, just we're attacking it in this new way or thinking of it in a new way. Maybe we can provide some insight to the companies. The next day I had, it had nothing to do with that call. I was, it was when I had the other podcast and my co-host had set up a interview with a low level fraudster and He was talking about the different methods he was using both in-store and online. And then he said something about refunding and how he was using refunding to especially pay for food for his family with delivery, food delivery, as well as clothes and things like that in retail. And I was like, what's refunding? And he told me and I was like, wait. So I started asking all these questions. And if I was if I was okay with listening to my voice a lot, I'd go back to that podcast episode and listen because I know I could probably hear the moment the light bulb went off in my head where I was like, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, So right after that call, I think I wrote like a dissertation. It was like this giant long, as I do when I'm excited and I want everyone to have all the details. I think I was like, guys, I figured it out. It's fraud. And then this long, you know, email, because I also went on a few groups. He kind of told me where he looked for services and things like that. So I went on a couple of encrypted messaging apps and looked at some of the public posts in those forums and saw a lot of your company names listed and a lot of, hey, you can, you know, you can claim the inventory was not received or for them, it's DNR did not receive for up to this much and this thing and all that for each company. And then there was even a PDF that now I still see people floating that around. I'm like, we had that three and a half years ago, but I actually do. So I'm looking guide. at it right now. I actually still have the screenshot <laughs> of that PDF and of that of the yeah. list. There was a guide that guide post by. There was a guide that people could buy for twenty dollars, I think, or something like that. I got it for free from. I actually, I think my co-host at the time sent it to me. Oh, the, the, I sent it the out handbook? to you guys. Yeah, the handbook. Yeah, it was yeah. like a handbook telling people how to commit refund fraud. I actually had like, that handbook. This is scaled. We had that handbook for quite some time. Our cybersecurity team somehow found it on dark web. And huh. we had that handbook. I just, and I used some of the pieces from that handbook into what we were trying to do previous to our call. But I just, I never thought it was at the scale that it was. That's what was surprising to me. I knew that somebody was doing this, but that it was so organized and yeah, in 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 a spirit of the new word that we are all using, orchestrated. Yeah, um, 
<laughs> that's what was surprising yeah. to me. So at that yeah, point, I think we imagined like a couple of random people just doing this here and there. I just, we called it policy abuse because that's exactly what we thought it was. It was someone who just, someone just finding a way of abusing policy we created to make experience for our good customers. And somebody found a loophole and is trying to exploit us and we're trying to stop them from exploiting it. But no, it was way, way larger than that. It was very well organized, thought through, obviously researched. Again, I'm looking at the list of these stores and the limits. And I even remember looking at some of these messages in some of the channels, how they said, especially during COVID, just put the note on your door that you have COVID. So they will just drop a package. They won't even ask you for a signature or something like that, yep. you know, because at that time there was still signature. There was still delivery. Required. Yeah. Yeah. Or if, you know, they need to ask you something for the investigation piece, because you could um, start an investigation on a specific address. They would say, hey, just say you broke your leg and you can't come down. It was, to me, it was mind-blowing like mm-hmm. oh wow it's way bigger than i actually thought and yeah. then it just made me start digging into this data and looking at this data completely differently a hundred percent i think that's that was really the light bulb moment is where when you realize oh there's a scale and there's systems and it's intentional and it kind of goes hand in hand with something that david Maiman and i were talking about a couple weeks ago because he's a cybersecurity and cyber criminal professor at georgia state university and we were talking about how there's been this migration from the dark web or deep web to different encrypted messaging apps, whether that's Telegram, whether that's WhatsApp, whether that's Discord. Some Reddit was a pretty hot spot at the beginning. It's since changed for another crazy reason, but that's a longer path that had nothing to do with it, but it impacted this and they moved. And I think the fact that you no longer needed a Tor browser and an Onion router and all that, it attracted this new group of fraud this new group of cyber criminals that don't even think that they're really committing cyber fraud because they're using their own credit card or they're using, you know, a prepaid card. They're using their own money to make the purchase. But then oftentimes either they would do it themselves or I think what really blew our mind at the time was this idea of fraud as a service. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, 
and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. Hiring someone to do this for you. And yeah. I know that I discovered a few cases where they would actually, not just on refund fraud, this is a different thing, but yeah. they would give their credit card number to fraudster to make a yeah. purchase. And then they would claim a charge rec. And yeah. for me, if we're talking like friendly fraud, I couldn't prove that this customer was placing this order because all of the other data I have is pointing somewhere else. So it certainly does look like, oh, okay, it could be fraud. Yeah. But no, this customer actually hired a person to place an order for them so they could claim it as fraud. So it's a little bit different than what we're talking about. But still, fraud as a service in general started to be something we were seeing more and more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And to your point, yeah, you can hire someone to make a purchase on a stolen credit card for you. You can purchase someone. You can hire hacked accounts on banks or all over the place. And I often peruse those groups just for general trend information. And I've learned so much but about all different types of fraud. But specific to refund fraud, I think what we're both talking about is just how some of these people researched each individual company at length. Yes. And they yes. researched it in a way of like trial and error. So similar to you were talking about earlier, how we when we had rules based systems, right? And some people still do and they're effective for some companies. And oftentimes they'll have enhanced layers to really help that rules based system. So it's not that rules based systems are bad, but we used to always say that fraudsters were pen testing, right? They were penetration testing, but not in the cybersecurity way. They're trying to figure out where those thresholds. So if a rules-based system said, we're going to review anything over $500 or a gift card over $500 or billing and shipping don't match and this and that, then we're going to review it and chances are we'll see it's fraud. Fraudsters would keep just placing tons and tons of orders and yes. tracking the different things they would do and see what worked. And what was crazy about what we were seeing in these groups was as soon as someone found something that worked, they didn't just do it themselves. They went on into groups with it's thousands of yes. people, took screenshots or pictures and showed exactly how to do it Yes, or charge for the method. And then we would see all of these. And I don't see these lists as often as I used to back then. They, see, don't, all want these us, lists. they don't want us to find them anymore. Right. That's why they don't post them. Well, actually, I think a lot more of it is the refund fraud as a service business model isn't the same as it was back then because a lot more people have learned how to do it themselves. But doesn't that make you wonder, just know what is next? Because like we always say, it's like a balloon. So as soon as close, yep. squeeze on one end, another end pops up. So it's probably going to be something else popping up, maybe something. Well, yeah, I mean, we're listening. seeing it with the different, with the five different types of refund fraud, fraud right? Yeah. We yes. were originally just looking at INRs and DNRs, but then we realized, oh, there's different ones. And I really went down a, a rabbit hole and a half. I started working with somebody who had a lot of access to the private groups as well, where they were talking about, so the public groups we would see, okay, you can make a purchase from retailer A for up to $1,000. It can be no more than two items and make sure it's not signature required. Or then COVID was happening. So then 
that meant that there were a lot more legitimate claims of didn't receive because there were shortages in the warehouses and shortages in the carriers and, you know, warehouses had to social distance. So everything was taking longer or. And everybody in customer service was trying to do the right by the, by the yes, customer. Make sure yes. Do what's right for the customer. And it is during holiday season. During holiday season, the number we, the reason we're so worried about fraud is because there are a lot more good customers shopping and fraudsters can use easier hide amongst those good yep. orders. So yeah, it's, it was definitely a, a kind of a revelation. And like I said, I remember your email. I remember where I was standing <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. You know what? It was kind of I was relieved because it was almost like it validated everything Validation. I've been doing for the last few, hmm. the past few years. But at the same time, it's okay, now I can put name to it. And now I can really focus as much time and resources as I need on this because it is true fraud and it truly does belong to me. Because up until that right. point, I was We're just trying right. to help and assist other teams in doing this in the right way hmm. and addressing this in the right way and minimize risk. But I, I wasn't stepping into it too much because I wasn't sure it was true fraud and it truly belonged to me. Well, but, right. Yeah. And actually, I seem to remember, and I don't know if this is true at your company, but I think that the real intention behind investigating these huge spike in did not receive claims wasn't actually from a loss perspective. It was actually, no, wow, not we're really all. messing up and we're really impacting our customers. Why yes. are we, why do we have so many more packages not making it to their door? What's, Correct. That's exactly why it was for us. This? Yeah. That's exactly why it was from us. Like how we can make better customer experience and how we can make sure that this is delivered to the customer. Mm -hmm. And then digging into it, trying to dissect the entire process and understand where the gaps are and where this error, which I thought it was process error, happens. I found a lot more than I bargained for, but I'm glad I did. Oh, didn't we all, right? I had no idea where any of this would lead. It's been a crazy ride because, and honestly, I don't, I don't think you or I ever stopped to think about those first few weeks, but it was crazy. And I, until today, when I pulled up my 2018 oh, presentation on it, and it was so naive, <laughs> I'm reading over it. I'm like, oh, I was and still thinking. I knew, <laughs> right, before I knew that this is like a business and scalable and COVID impacted it so much more because there were so many people out of work or who couldn't feed their families or who couldn't clothe their families or who needed a side hustle and wanted to resell stuff. So we you saw this massive increase after COVID too. It wasn't just, there was definitely a spike through the, like in 2018, then 2019. And I remember my former co-host talking about what he called at the time Amazon fraud. And it was basically refund fraud, but it was just targeting the big companies. But this was, but I hadn't put two and two together because whenever he'd talk about it, he'd talk about it with just laptops or something like that. And I think it was just targeting those big things. And so I didn't put two and two together. But then once we started diving down and seeing this, and I worked with somebody who, or I met someone who had built up these aliases just out of curiosity and had gotten access to all these private groups. So I was able to, so in the public groups, they were listing out, you know, Basically, their services for people to hire refunders to do it for them, you know, so they would and the refunder would say, hey, order the package. This is the menu. You use your card. You do all that. And then once you place an order, usually they'd fill out a Google form and put in all the information about their order. And sometimes it was also a lot of times they required their username and password, which I'm like, great. Now we're creating consensual account takeover or account handover. And uh, then the refunders were the ones that 
kind of knew what to do at each company, right? Okay, if I ordered this, if they ordered this kind of item and it was from this company, I'm going to say this, if it's this or that, whatever. In those private groups, that's where they were sharing all of that information. So then I got really good access. And because we started meeting every other week as a group, I was able to say, hey, have you tried, like, what's your policy on this? Or what's your policy? So I was able to see both sides of the fence for a lot of retailers, not just yours, not just a few other, like all of them. And a few times it was fun because the refunders would post like the actual person's address or things like that. So we would know exactly, okay, that order in that account was refund fraud. What are all the differences about that order compared to, you know, one from before? And where is that point of compromise? Where does it look different than any other regular one? And then we all shared all that information every other week. So it wasn't like one of, you know, we just kept, I don't know, I think this group was magic in so many ways, but to think about how far this group of merchants has come in the fight against refund fraud above other companies that just weren't a part of it because I didn't have their contact information or they didn't want to work with us is pretty awesome. We influence all this new product creation. (laughs) Right now, there is a product out there for recent fraud management. (laughs) There are some. We'll get to that. But I was going to say, actually, yeah, there were a few vendors that were very quick. I mean, because obviously merchants were like, okay, well, I'm going to go to my vendor and see if they can help with this. And there were a few vendors that were quick to say, yes, they could. And then they realized, oh, we can't. Yeah. It was funny because they could recreate and use the same tools for repayment fraud as they could refund fraud. And that's it's interesting you mentioned the google form how you had to submit the google form talking about reverse engineering then we use google form to stop them but it is interesting mentioning Mm -hmm. some of these vendors saying they have a solution that (laughs) helps us i'm sitting at look watching one of these webinars or one of the presentations about such a product and i'm literally looking at the forms and the questionnaires they have and those are my words Mm-hmm. They did not even try to change the wording. I mean, okay, in, in general, you know, you use the same words in prose for everything, but I have a specific way of saying <laughs> things because English is not my first language. So sometimes my word order is not as it should be, which mm. it doesn't bother me. I don't notice, but if no. I read something, it's more noticeable to me. So I'm reading these things. I'm like, this is fine. So you literally copied everything I said and just posted it out there and say, you found the solution. No, you didn't. So it was really interesting. And I was actually sitting at some of the, I think I told you that story, like how mm-hmm. I was sitting at an inventor uh-huh. product presentation. And they are literally telling me how they have this great way of finding Fruster and they're giving me the strategy <laughs> exactly I came you, up right. with. Like, okay, great. Right. And I wanted to talk about that, obviously. So yeah, we saw a lot of companies at first and it was natural, right? To think, okay, it's fraud. So we can solve it the same way as payment fraud. The problem is when we looked at all of those orders and there were lots and you guys, honestly, you as retailers looked at so many more than I did. I worked with a couple as a consultant, but also I was kind of more like in that 10,000 foot view. But you guys were doing really the actual work and kind of reporting it back up. And what it came to light is there's not a single identifier at the time of purchase that's going to tell you this person is intending to steal from you, too. At the end, you know, in a month and a half, it's going to be the same amount of loss minus a chargeback fee as fraud, as payment fraud because they keep the item and they're getting their money back. There's nothing that shows you that because they're not doing anything different as a customer until they call and make a claim. 
And that's exactly where the mistake was in most of these vendor yep. parts because they were trying to resolve it at the point of purchase and it couldn't. You didn't have enough data to resolve it at the point of purchase. And we no, they didn't even like know every exactly. other one. You'd have way too many exactly. false positives, right? And it was not, there was no proactive approach. There was a reactive approach <laughs> only because we did <laughs> not have enough data and we did not have enough knowledge to be able to proactively solve it. Now You're we so have right. more and we can probably do much more with it. Back then we didn't. So I think we jumped into that area or some of these vendors jumped into that area, which was not good for sales because I don't want to stop customer from shopping just because I think they may or hey. not request yes. a refund. It was not a good idea. And I think that was the biggest pain point that it was so much more reactive. Mm-hmm. And anytime when you have to react instead of being proactive is causing a lot of challenges, a lot of issues, a lot of losses. And I think you mentioned earlier how they are changing this information and then whatever vulnerability one person finds that it goes into thousand orders within a minute or yes. hour. Oh, yeah. That's why we always talk about reputational loss being mm-hmm. way greater than the financial loss. Financial loss, you can always recover from. Yes. You can put something in place where you can quantify it. Reputational loss, reputational risk is way greater. First, you can't recover so fast from it because these frosts are share information and then hmm. doubles from there. Second, it's definitely difficult to quantify it and definitely difficult to present it to your executives and say, hey, this is how much reputation we're losing because of rape and fraud. So it's definitely difficult to put something in place Hmm. to manage that. So I think we do have very, we had and we still do have very challenging job of making sure that we do protect both of these aspects, Hmm. financial and reputational, at the same time that we do make sure that our good customer is shopping without any friction or with minimum friction loss. You bring up such a good point because a lot of times when we're talking about reputational risk with payment fraud, we're talking about the risk that comes with victims, right? Cardholder victims who say, yeah, my card was used at XYZ company or is used on this website. Or we talk about reputational risk in different ways like that. But from a refund fraud perspective, we started to see posts on social media saying you don't need to pay full price at this company anymore. It's easy to rip them off. Just pay me 10% or 15% of what you will pay them, and then I'll get it back for you. We saw that with delivery, food delivery companies, like definitely during COVID. That's a lot with retailers too, where it's like, you guys are stupid. You know, people would be posting in social media all these stacks of cash from the items that they'd resold. And they'd say, if you're paying full price at this company or that company, you're stupid because I have a way to get you 90% off and you're not committing credit card fraud. You're not even committing fraud is what they're telling. And it's not even illegal if you think about it. It actually is. I mean, it kind of is if they can prove that you have that item, but it's the intentionality actually. So I have talked, yeah, I talked to um, Raul Aguilar at DHS who was on the podcast a few months ago and asked him about that. And he did say it is, but you do have to prove their intention and you have to prove it's a lot more. Than just, you know, they stole a credit card, they stole someone's identification, they committed identity theft. It's that. So there were so many people who, whether it was because of COVID or opportunity or others that realized, oh, why am I paying full price for this? This is easy and nothing's happening. And I want to say one other thing when we're talking about like vendors and things like that. So some of them were and some of them do have policy abuse products that are actually very good. They're very good. Yes. But you have to understand the problem, right? There's a difference between policy abuse and refund claim fraud. Do you want to, can I explain that? Yes, because I think policy abuse is much 
broader, larger term that mm -hmm. refund fraud is only one part of that policy abuse. And I think if you think about any way you can lose financial assets, if you can lose money in your company without being illegal, I would call that policy abuse. And usually when I explain this with him, my company, when I try to do trainings for some other departments, which I often do, I always tell them fraud is something that we could say it's illegal. Abuse is something that may not be illegal, but it still causes financial reputational loss to the company. Hmm. So if you think completely up different, but relevant, account creation. It's not illegal to create 30 <laughs> different accounts, but if you create 30 different loyalty accounts, you are abusing policy of getting that welcome package or welcome right. points or birthday code or... If you're creating those 30 accounts because, exactly. right, because you're you benefiting are, from... 30 different birthday codes or 30 different And not even mentioning account. marketing money that yes. is going out oh there for 30 different customers that new customer are one single customer. Yep. Correct. And that's what is policy abuse. So I think the policy abuse is just a broader term and mm -hmm. fraud is only one part of it. I also think the policy abuse is promo codes, any type of coupon. Oh, yeah. Any policy that you created to create good customer experience and exceptional customer experience that is abused by an individual or groups is policy abuse to me. So whatever that means to you as a company, to me, like I said, cultural creation right. would be that. Coupon abuse would be that. Refund fraud and DNRs would be that. I just think when cust when these vendors are coming out and saying we have policy abuse solution, if you're handling only one piece of that, then it's not policy abuse. Then it's refund fraud. Yeah. So, and the one thing I'd add on that is as it comes to refund fraud, right? Like refund specifically, because I think that there's a big, there's still a misunderstanding by a lot of people that refund claim fraud is policy abuse. And the reason why I separate them out is, yes, you may have one person who on their one account, they buy 20 items, they return 10 items and they get a refund. That's not refund fraud. That's return. Right. That's Invention. normal. That's retail. Or refund. But you might have or someone who, them right, they're returning them, right? Yeah, you might have. And I have these slides in my training on refund fraud because I kind of talk about different personas and customers. That's just someone who's, you know, a serial returner, but they're returning the item. So that's not fraud at all. So you're not having an So you have this gray area where you have, so then you have the middle ground where you have someone, who, if I'm using my same account and I place five orders and on three of them, I call your customer service and say, it didn't come. It didn't arrive. Or this time, you know, the box was empty or this time it got damaged. That to me is still policy abuse. That's not refund claim fraud because it's on the same account. And that is something that. But if you hire someone to file this claim for well, you, you are definitely having an intent. You're not going to do it. Fraud, right. But, yeah. but the refunders that you hire tell you to do this on a separate account. Correct. They tell Correct. you to use a different email. And that's where the account creation piece, I just wanted to highlight, that's the difference. Because if you and have that's the why same I account that, as that an keeps example, so doing the... refund fraud claims, then, you know, you, then yeah, a payment fraud tool that's looking at abuse at the time of transaction, like they're looking at policy abuse for promo code abuse and loyalty fraud and those types of things, that will catch it. The difference yeah. is they're all creating new accounts. So you have a new, and it looks like a new customer. It looks like the kind of new customer that your marketing department is putting a lot of money into for Absolutely. customer acquisition. And that those was are the customers you don't I... want to cancel at the time of payment because to your point earlier, you don't want to sale. Yeah, if you canceled a good customer at the time of ordering it, like that would be, and you don't have any leg, you can't say, they're not using their own credit card. They're not shipping it here. They're not doing it there. 
everything looks okay, but they're using a different email and they might be using their neighbor's address and they might be doing something different. They're legitimate. You can cross that. You can verify all that. That is what we mean by refund fraud. So I just want to be super clear that yes, there are some people that will use the same account and they'll make claims on them. That's abuse. And that's something that can be prevented. And that's also around business policies, right? As a business, you can decide after two of these, we're going to tell them they need to ship it to a different address or they need to pick it up at the store or they need to have signature required because we can track it on that one person. But when they're opening up tons of different accounts and they're using a different card on each one and all these other things, that's when we cross over into refund fraud. And that's exactly why I took account creation as an example of policy abuse because you have to yeah. extend your research, right. your mitigation and monitoring mm -hmm. into other parts of the process of that customer journey, as I always say, a customer journey on your site or your transaction life cycle. You have to expand mm -hmm. it outside of just the point of refund request or refund decision, whatever yep. that looks yep. for your internal organization. Yeah. And yeah, that we, and I feel like I talk about this a lot in different episodes. I just talked about it with Frank last week about fake accounts and just how it is challenging though for companies in technology and in retail to do a lot at account creation because a lot of times the company's valuation is based on number of users and number of accounts. So you've got a lot of things working against you. And I think that's what's interesting. Um, when I was working with the person who had all this inside access to the private groups, he had first started trying to go reach out to merchants and say, hey, you have this problem. I can help you fix it. He had no idea how to help him fix it because he thought it was easy, right? He didn't know all the issues in business. He never worked in corporate America. Very sweet guy, very knowledgeable about that side. But he was like, oh, all they have to do is just do this and this. And I'm like, they'll never do that because that's going to limit their customers. That's you not how it works. Right. Yeah. This is a balancing act. Like we always say, I can stop all of fraud. It's by stopping all of sales or a big chunk of sales, right? But are you a truly good fraud manager by stopping 50% of your sales? Yeah. That's not the point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Are there going to, is there going to be money to pay your paycheck next month if you decline all these sales? Maybe not. But, but I, I think, I, yeah, go ahead. I want to touch on the point where we, yeah, we saw this huge increase that we mentioned, obviously in full delivery. And I think mm -hmm. we talked about this in the past in one of our webinars somewhere that some restaurants in California lost their businesses because they could, they had so many chargebacks. They had so many claims that they yes. couldn't sustain the business anymore. And I hate to get into a philosophical debate of human nature, but I really mm -hmm. do think that a lot of people had a lot of time on their hands and it was so easily accessible to do this. And they just hmm. took advantage. And I think really the situation overall created this kind of atmosphere. So for everything being allowed at that mm -hmm. point, mm -hmm. not that it's legal, not that we like it, not that we even allow no. it. But I think at that point, it almost created this emergency crisis thinking in people's heads that they were doing just anything they can to get that money or to get that product for free. But I really do believe besides just this financial hardship and E-commerce sales mm. were increasing. The signatures are no longer required because of no contact. I really do believe that a lot of people just had a lot of time on their hands. They were going scrolling through TikToks or mm -hmm. some of their Instagram posts and got a lot of ideas. And well, and they weren't. Yeah, they monster might have needed income, might not. Yeah, there's a nature of gaming in creating refund fraud or refund claim fraud. It's a gaming of the system, right? It's sticking it to the man. It's constantly finding these little loopholes. Because you think, and oh, this whole... is a big company. They have a lot of money. They, mm -hmm. 
Why wouldn't I get this? But also that younger generation. The majority of people that we saw doing the most refunding and we still see are usually 16 to 28 or under 35. A lot of them grew up playing video games. They'll spend three hours trying to look for the magic chalice, you know, in a video game. Of course, they're going to try to find that one loophole on how they can get the brand new iPhone, maybe not directly through Apple, but they can get it through a reseller, right? Or they'll spend that much time and they constantly love that cat and mouse and they love trying to figure out the systems. And I think that it opened it up to so many more people to your point, because yeah, they were sharing about it on TikToks. They're sharing about it. There was this whole ecosystem where there were a lot of people on those forums and groups, but then there were others that were advertising externally in regular social media in all those ways to get new customers for their refunding business. So it was like all these different layers. I talk about all that. I've done all that at different conferences and webinars and things to understand. Because the thing is, the reason why we're talking about the how they're doing it and what they're doing and all that is because you can't begin to solve the problem until you understand exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. And you and I took to the streets a little bit in that first year because there were a lot of merchants that weren't in our group that still didn't think this was fraud and were having, you know, a challenging time. But then they would reach out to me or they'd reach out to you and say, are you having a lot of people claim all of a sudden that there's an empty box or that this or that? And we go, oh, welcome to the group. <laughs> I remember those conversations in the beginning when somebody would send, hey, we're seeing a lot of this and that. And then we would just respond. Yep, that's what it is. Yep, yep that's what it is. You're seeing it right yep. now. Yeah. And I think when people That's started, what we call refund fraud. Well, I, I still get those on the FTID method for sure. Hey, we're having a lot of customers call our customer service and say that they returned the item at our warehouse, but we can't find it. You know, I'm like, oh, but maybe yep, they truly it delivered it to the wrong address by mistake. Well, no, right. they didn't. And that's right. So that's what we're. Three claims in a row. They all three delivered to the wrong address by mistake. I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. But I had those internal conversations as well. Yeah. I do have an extremely good relationship with our customer service team. And they, mm. Every time they see some of these trends, and those are one of those where some of the information I got, is we received two, three, five claims in a row, and they're all, we know we requested our return label. We know our return label right. has our address being delivered somewhere else. Once mm -hmm. or twice, I can say, okay, fine. Yes, maybe it is a mistake. But three right. times, and all these claims happen in the same day. To me, three is never a coincidence. Well, right. It's and you're not saying pattern. three on the same account. You're saying three different no, no, accounts three. that they're all claiming the same thing. Yep. Exactly. I agree. And like I said, to me, three is always a pattern. It doesn't yeah. matter what your sample size is, it sizes. It doesn't matter how many orders you have per day. If it's three, to me, it's a pattern because it's very unlikely that you're going to get three of something, especially three of wrong delivery addresses. Right. Something very rare. So I knew that this would happen. This is why I asked if you could do two episodes. I knew we can't cram everything in that we want to talk about in just one. So on Thursday's episode, we're going to dive more into the how for our side, right? So we'll talk about those five different types and how we've seen their first, second, third, fourth, fifth option and how they, when they stop with one, then what they move to next. And we'll also talk about some of the ways that, you know, you mentioned already that you've already seen some of your methods that have worked well being duplicated. And you and I do have some methodologies and processes that we've built both separately and together for different companies that have worked and helped them. And then, you know, we have a little, I think, announcement at the end of the, of the second episode that I think people will also be interested in hearing. We're going to dive way more into those things, especially if you're in retail or if you've ever wondered what is this thing that they're talking about or how does it work? We're going to keep talking about that on Thursday. Diana, thank you so much. 
our conversations always go by fast. But then when I look at the clock, I'm like, oh, it's been a while. Uh, well, our phone calls are only three hours long, usually. I know, right? That's why we try not to. That's why we try to text more often because, like, I don't have three hours. But it's because we literally can talk about this stuff for hours and we enjoy it. And like I said, we are fraud nerds, but I'm so grateful that you are my fellow fraud nerd and we can geek out on these things because I've certainly learned a lot through talking these things out with you and with a lot of other companies that are in our group. I'm very grateful. I'll never, I'll always be a proponent for merchant collaboration. There's nothing like it. We definitely know that. Thank you. All right. I will talk to you on Thursday. Thank you. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.